So hey guys, we're back. Today we have another podcast and today we have my good friend Peter Brand and I love talking to Peter. Um, we <laughs> we talk a lot, a lot more than you think we do. Um, in fact, before this podcast, we spoke almost 30 minutes just talking about Western history. But we have Peter Brand on the phone and um, before we get into that, I want to make sure everybody knows about Tombstone Epitaph at tombstoneepitaph.com, Arizona's longest-running newspaper. Uh, Mark and Eric are doing a great job getting out a true Western newspaper delivered right to your door. If you'd like to be a subscriber, go to truewestmagazine.com. Also, our friends over at True West Magazine at truewestmagazine.com. It is, in my opinion, the number one magazine for the Wild West. You can go to truewestmagazine.com. Uh, click um, on the on the website, and then in the upper right-hand corner is a subscribe button. Hit the subscribe button, and there's a drop-down menu of all the different menu plans that you can get to get Bob Bozbell and uh, Ask the Marshal and uh, all these wonderful writers and researchers and historians delivered right to your door in some of the best and most beautiful pictures ever. And again, that's truestmagazine.com. I want to thank my friend, my second family over at Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. I urge you to join. Uh, we got Roundup coming up 2023. It's right around the corner in San Antonio, Texas. There's still time. If you haven't made your plans, make your plans. Come down, see me. I'd love to meet you. And, uh, and Peter Brand and Roy Young and all these amazing researchers and writers that have, are part of the WWHA. A lot of them are going to be there. Not all of them, but a lot of them are going to be there. And I'd love to see you too. Uh, membership is 75 bucks a year and, uh, you get the journal and, uh, you get all sorts of great stuff. The journal is like four books a year. And then you get the website, you get the saddlebags, you get, uh, updated information about the newest stuff that's coming out in Western history and the new finds that uh, researchers have found, like join us. We'd love to have you as a member. So today's podcast is based on a uh, March 2023. Peter Brand wrote an article called Josephine Sadie Earp's Sordid Secrets and Lies. That's a lot to say. Josephine Sadie Earp's Sordid Secrets and Lies. He wrote this article um, long before it was published. Uh, it was in the March 2023 WWHA Journal. If you want to get the journal, you can do so. This this episode, not episode, but this uh, magazine, the March 2023. Now, it may be that they've sold out and that there are none, but you'll have to go to the WWHA website at wildwesthistory.org. Click on the journal, work your way through the journal, and you can request a back issue and they'll tell you how much it's going to cost with shipping. But if you just join and get it over with, you'll get them delivered right to your door and you don't have to worry about, you know, whether or not they're going to have an issue or not. This one, um, Peter uncovered some groundbreaking information that is going to change the way I think Western history is going to view Josephine Earp. Um, again, you can find this article in the March 2023, I can't even talk, the March 2023 WWHA Journal edition. So welcome, sir. How are you? 
Hi, Mike. Great to be back with you. It's good to talk. Yeah, we we talk a lot, and I and people don't know we'll we'll talk on a Sunday, um, or excuse me, Saturday for me because he's a day ahead, and um, I I usually call him around nine o'clock in the morning for me for him, which is about four p.m. for me here in Arizona, and we'll talk for two hours on the phone. If it wasn't for Messenger, I'd have a three hundred dollar phone bill. Um, <laughs> easily. Yeah, the time difference does make things interesting, doesn't it? Yeah, it definitely makes things interesting. But it works out, and I love him, and I'm glad he's here. You de- you decide. How did I'm going to ask you before we dig into it? Who comes to you and says, "We want you to uncover." or dig deep into Josephine's life, or is no one coming to you, but it's a part of history that you really wanted to research, and then you got a hold of the WWHA and said, listen, I've got this 25-page article, which is what it is. It's 25 pages that is ready for print and is going to blow your mind. How does that come about? Well, no one came to me and asked me to write it. It, it. it it was something that I decided to do. But my journey with Sadie started about 10 years prior when a great, um, a very, very good author and researcher named Roger Jay um, actually 10 years ago uh, in the 2013 edition of the WWHA, he decided to write an expose about Sadie Earp and her, the story she told in her memoir, and he he found lots of inconsistencies in it. And he was based on the east coast of America, and I happened to be in Arizona at the time he was researching for his article, and he said to me, I can't make it to Arizona. You're in Arizona, and I was at the time doing my own research, he said, would you be able to help me research Sadie Earp and uh, the time that she spent in Arizona? And I said, sure, I'm you know, happy to help. And I went to the, the uh, State Historical Society and I went to the State Archive, um, mainly on his behalf, and uh, dug up everything that I possibly could and looked in every uh, manuscript that I could mainly for Roger Jay's purposes of writing his article. His article came out in 2013 and he um, was gracious enough to credit me with finding um, some stuff for him in that article. And that's a that was an exceptional article. Um, and what he did in that article was critique what's known as the case in manuscript. So that's when my journey started with Sadie. It was actually 10 years prior and I was working for Roger Jay, who sadly is no longer with us, but... Um, that's how I got started on it because what I found and what Roger published asked some really big questions of what Sadie had written in the case and manuscript. But during that time, in that 10 years, did you just push it off to the side? Because then you did Johnny Tyler, which is a groundbreaking book. I think the preeminent books that really paints johnny tyler and creates the story of who he really was not this buffoon kind of guy that we see played on tombstone but you know a real i don't want to say bad man but just a man of his times that really took no crap from anybody 
Yeah, and, so I got in that interim 10-year period, I, I wasn't focused on Sadie. I was right. happy to have helped Roger J, and I, and I was glad that I, I thought I knew a lot more about Sadie having done that groundwork. But then I went on to other things. I, mm. I wrote an article for the WWHA on Virgil Earp in San Francisco after um, he after he'd left Arizona, and I I wrote the Johnny Tyler Tyler biography, and I, I wrote a biography on um, Ben Sippy, the marshal that replaced Fred White in Tombstone for the WWC. So I had moved on and done other things, and um, so you know I wasn't focused on her particularly. Um, I was interested in anything that knew the pop knew that popped up, but I I certainly wasn't. She wasn't my focus. I, I thought Roger had covered off uh, the case in manuscript very, very well in, in his article. It was very well written. It left no wiggle room really at all. It, it, he he'd conclusively proved that um, Sadie had told some pretty outrageous lies in her manuscript. So I left it at that, um, not thinking that there'd be too much more to find. And I moved on to those other projects we mentioned. But um, what actually happened, COVID hit big time in Australia as it did around the world, and that forced um, us into lockdown here in Australia. We had very strict lockdown laws. So I ended up with a lot more time on my hands to actually write and research via the internet. And I got started. I thought, you know what, I've only ever written about men and I thought I'd uh, challenge, take myself on and challenge myself to write um, the biography of a woman, um, which I'd never done before. And I thought it was, a, it was a good time to try and branch out and see if I could tell a woman's story. So I decided to write um, a biography for the WWHA on Victoria Bean, who was Johnny Bean's uh, one and only wife. Um, and I was... Very, I had all the time because of the COVID lockdowns here. I'm not sure if you were lock, actually locked down in um, in the USA as tightly as we were here, but we were restricted in our movements. We were um, forced to sort of live at home, work from home, um, and large gatherings were were outlawed. So I ended up short. Long story short, I had time, a lot more time on my hands, and I decided to write. Um, the biography of Victoria Bean um, because I thought she played an important role in Prescott history and uh, also in Bean's history. So I got started on on that and I got that uh, finished. But one of the pivotal moments in her story is her divorce from Johnny Bean. And uh, the reason that she divorced him was infidelity and the woman's name that came up as being the prime suspect that broke her marriage down was a, a prostitute by the name of Sadie Mansfield who was living in Prescott at the time. This is in 1874, 1875. And I, that, as soon as I got to the divorce, it, it brought back all the, the memories of my research for Roger J because Roger Jay and a previous uh, researcher named Carol Mitchell had made the decision and made and come to the conclusion, should I say, that Sadie Mansfield, the prostitute in Prescott who was having the affairs with Johnny Bean, was actually uh, Sadie Earp. 
uh, or Sadie Marcus, as she was known at the time. So <clears throat> I was drawn back into Sadie's story by actually writing the biography of Victoria Bean because of that link, that that link in the chain between her husband and this prostitute. So that sent me, once I'd completed that, I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a, have a look at another woman here. I'm going to go back and have another closer look at uh, Sadie Marcus, Sadie, uh, Sadie Mansfield. God, I could listen to you for another hour. It's amazing story. I, and if you, got, if you guys are like me, I'm sitting there staring at the phone, actually my eyes closed, just listening to you talk because you're such a great storyteller. We're talking to Peter yeah, Brand. So, well, we're talking to Peter yeah, Brand so, who wrote an... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. We're talking to Peter Brand who wrote an article for the WWHA magazine, the March edition. He has written uh, an article called Josephine Sadie Earp's Sordid Secrets and Lies. You can find that by going to wildwesthistory.org and uh, scrolling through and finding the journals and hope to gosh they got it there. If you want to become a member, we would love to have you as a member. Even if you listen or you're part of the Facebook group or you're on YouTube or wherever, you're actually just following the page. You're not a true member. Um, to be a true member, you have to go to the Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org, become a member, pay your dues, and then you get the journal delivered right to your door uh, on a quarterly basis. And you'll get articles like Peter right there so you can get them and read them that are true, truly researched. When um, when you started your article and I was reading it, um, you you delved right into it like there was no, you know, f- fluff in the in the beginning. You, you dug right into it, exposing some of the lies and the truths. And and in the movie Tombstone, White Earp sees her in that playhouse. And she says, I have no money. And she says, oh, you don't have to worry. My family is rich. Well, that portrayed her in a couple of ways. One, as an entertainer. And two, that she has a rich family. And in reality, neither one are true. Is that correct? Yeah, that's very correct. She she wanted um, her story to be a clean story. She wanted to be a nice story. She wanted to be portrayed as probably we all do as good people you know who, who are doing good things so um when she decided to tell her story in later life uh, she painted herself in the best possible way she uh she made out that her family was very comfortable that her upbringing had been uh, a good one and that her father was a, a wealthy merchant um from germany or prussia um, and, you know, that she was um, interested in the stage. She claimed that she'd been taught singing and dancing um, as a child. Um, so she she sort of fed um, her own story with, with untruths, if you want to put it that way. Her family weren't rich. Her father was a, a very poor immigrant um, who originally had come from Prussia um, and settled in New York like a lot of immigrants did. Eventually he made the move to San Francisco 
uh, and he did that by 1870. He brought his uh, four children and his wife with him, and he settled into life as a very, very humble uh, baker, uh, at first working um, in a bakery uh, in the poorer sections of San Francisco, barely, from my research, barely able to make ends meet. Um, in fact, in the 1870 census, he a father listed their total value of their possessions at $100, and that ain't much when you think he's got a wife and uh, four children to support. So, you know, right off the bat, she was trying to spin the story or her story into something that it definitely wasn't. Because not only did were they poor, he's a baker, they're... I believe that they were trying to send their daughter to a private school. Was that correct? Well, they they did send. Uh, I mean, they did. To their credit, they tried to educate their children. Right. Um, one of her, she had um, a half sister, so her mother had had already had a daughter when um, Sadie's father married. So she ended up with a, an older half-sister and then she had a brother named Marcus, uh, Nathan Marcus, and uh, then she was born and then she had a, a younger sister uh, named Hattie Marcus. So um, there were three girls and the one boy, Nathan, and they they were um, sent off to school, um, you know, as as the family obviously wanted to get them educated, but um, the they were always living in the very poor sections of San Francisco. So um, despite, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a baker, but um, in at that time in San Francisco, there was a class structure. So, you know, if you were a professional, you lived in a certain area. If you were a labourer, you lived in a certain area. And if you were poor, you definitely lived in the poorer regions of the city. So she she grew up in, in very tough circumstances, in my opinion, and she didn't like the circumstances under which she was living. It was poor. It was probably, um, you know, the area was probably pretty dirty. It was a an industrial area, so you're talking about factories, you're talking about a lot of the workmen that would be in those areas were immigrants as well from all over the world. Um, so she didn't like school. She made that clear in her um, recollections. And so she was restless. She she was obviously an adventurous type, and she, she wanted... There's inferences all the way through her story that she that she told in later life that she was dying to get out of that that slum area, that poor that poverty cycle where she could see people either going bad or or just not having enough to get by. And I think um, that resonated through her story. She was she was longing for something else, be it adventure or a better lifestyle. From a very early age, that's what she wanted. So, this is so crazy when we talk about this next part. Because in her life, around 12 or 13 years old, she comes in contact with a prostitute named 
Emma Hopper. Emma Hopper. Yes. But so, she willing. The thing uh, is, is that she willingly went along. Can you talk about that? Yes. So, so when Roger J wrote his article, oh, actually, I'll go back even further. In two thousand and one, um, Carol Mitchell, who was a a very good writer researcher decided um, when she evaluated all the facts, when she looked at all the census data, when she looked at who Johnny Bean was associated with, and we know that Sadie uh, or Sadie Marcus had had a relationship with um, Johnny Bean, she'd admitted to that. Um, so Carol Mitchell was one of the first people to actually write for True West and say straight out that, in her opinion, Sadie Marcus was actually living in Arizona in 1874 under the name Sadie Mansfield and was actually a working prostitute. And at that time, she would have been about 14 years of age. And that shocked a lot of people. People thought, no way could that have happened. A 14-year-old um, from San Francisco ends up in Prescott sleeping with Johnny Bean at the, at the tender age of 14. That that created a, a bit of a stir. People just said, no way could, would that be possible. A, because of her age, and B, because the story that she told didn't fit anything you know, like what Carol had come up with. So that was thrown out there like a hand grenade, and people went, oh, wow, that can't be true. And that... And, and when you hit people with a brand new idea, a lot of times you'll get pushback, you'll get blowback with people saying, no, no, that can't be true, that simply, you know, wouldn't have happened. So it sat there and people spoke about it for a while and then people thought, well, there's no other evidence of it, so we'll just dismiss that out of hand because it couldn't have happened, that she's too young, um, the, the distances, the travel, the... It, it just wouldn't have happened. So um, luckily for me, uh, Roger Jay then came along 10 years later and said to me, I think it did happen and I think um, if you can dig into those Arizona records, get me more detail, I'll, I'll do a lot more research at my end on the stories that she did tell in her memoir, that, which was known as The Case in Manuscript, and we'll get to the bottom of this. And so he, he actually pulled me in that way, and then he wrote an outstanding article in 2013. I thought it was um, groundbreaking. He, he made it very, very clear that it actually could have happened and probably did happen, exactly as Carol Mitchell had surmised. So... Ten years later, this is 2013, we have Roger Jay hitting everyone with a, with a great article full of really great research. Um, and he was very articulate, a very good writer, and he was able to uh, tell the story. And that was, that was very convincing. And that, I think that swayed uh, the general opinion back towards the fact that, hey, this, this actually could have happened and, and probably did. And so the matter sat there, um, as we discussed earlier, for another 10 years while people sort of went back and forth. There was discussions within the field about whether or not, you know, Roger was on the money or whether he was a bit off or whether it could or couldn't have happened. You, you get people wavering again. But Roger put another nail uh, in the coffin, so to speak, to say, hey, not only could it have happened, uh, 
it, it probably did. And and so we were left with um, this image of a 14-year-old girl running away from San Francisco to, to end up um, in Prescott, which was really the frontier at that, at that stage, um, and sleeping with with a well-known um, politician named Johnny Bean. So, uh, you know, that that drew me in, obviously, because I was working for Roger J. And then when I had my own uh, moment there writing the Victoria Bean biography and Sadie Mansfield's name popped up again in um, as it did in the divorce records, I thought, I'm going to have a closer look myself because... To me, what no one had actually done at that point, and even Roger uh, hadn't had time to really examine what life was like in 1870, between 1870 and 1874 for a very, very poor immigrant family living in San Francisco. So I, I wanted to go and delve into the underbelly of San Francisco. That was the first thing that I did. I wanted to see if it was possible for children to be procured at such a tender age um, by nefarious, you know, criminals, um, procurers, prostitutes, pimps, gamblers. I wanted to see if that actual scenario could have happened. Um so I went into the San Francisco records, and that was my starting point. I, I wanted to know if it was possible, if that was happening to other people, if, if other poor immigrant families were suffering the same fate. And because if it wasn't possible, like if, if that scenario wasn't happening in San Francisco, well, that would have made it harder for people to believe that she actually did run away from home to become a prostitute. So that was my starting point. But you didn't end there. No, because what I I actually was um, shocked myself. I I, I expected to find uh, vice naturally because every big metropolis has a vice trade, and I expected to find vice because I'd written the Johnny Tyler story, and he he would basically spend a lot of time in San Francisco. So I knew that there was a lot of gambling going on. I knew that there was a lot of uh, very, very dodgy saloons. I knew that there was obviously prostitution going on, but I hadn't really gone into great detail about prostitution because Johnny was a gambler and I, I'd spent a lot of time studying gambling. But anyway, when I got into the prostitution side of things, I was shocked. I, I was saddened um, and shocked to learn that there was a thriving vice trade in San Francisco preying on immigrant children, preying on immigrant um, girls from, believe it or not, the age of 10 to 16. And and incredibly, that was the prime time for procurers to be going after vulnerable um, girls in San Francisco. So between 1870 and 1874, you, uh, I found stories of girls as young as 10 being uh, taken uh, sometimes, unfortunately, willingly, sometimes against their will, um, sometimes at that age not even knowing what they were getting themselves into. But it was a thriving trade and it was so 
such a thriving trade that the San Francisco Police Force actually dedicated two detectives to try to rescue young girls that had been procured uh, for the, the prostitution trade. So I was shocked to learn that, yeah, not only, you know, could it happen, it, it was happening on a daily basis during that period. And that to me was shocking. So it opened my eyes greatly to what was going on in San Francisco in the poorer areas. Um, some of these girls were from large immigrant families. They were very, very um, disadvantaged in, in terms of having steady meals, some not getting education, uh, very poor clothing. Um, so they were, they were willing to break out of that lifestyle if someone offered them a better lifestyle without really understanding what was going to happen to them. So, yeah, I was shocked to find that that was actually going on. So having having found that not only was the situation possible, it was thriving. It was a it was a thriving vice trade um, in the slums and middle class of San Francisco, and and contributing to that, of course, was the fact that San Francisco was an international port. So there was there were ships coming in from all over the world, many even from Australia, lot a lot of them from the Orient a lot of them from the South Pacific. Um, so you had a mix of all sorts of immigrants from all over the world in San Francisco. You had Irish, you had English, you had Australians, you had Italians, you had Chinese. You had this melting pot of people from all over the world. You had sailors, you had miners who were on their way to the gold fields. You had the perfect storm for... Vice, be it gambling, drinking, prostitution. So, um, San Francisco was was a good place to be if you had money, but it certainly wasn't a good place to be if you didn't have money. And unfortunately, Sadie's family didn't have money; they were struggling. Um, her brother. Uh, what I found interesting when reading the case and manuscript, which was Sadie's memoir. Um, was that she failed to mention her brother at all, which is quite odd when you think about it. When you're writing a memoir of your your history, your family history, it, it's very strange to completely ignore your brother. His name isn't mentioned at all in the entire manuscript. And that I found doing research was because he ran away from home at the age of 13. He was fed up or either couldn't be provided for and he, he decided to do a runner he left the family home and was living on the street himself at 13. So Sadie would have seen that. Um, he ended up in the industrial school for boys, which was another term for a reformatory uh, that was run in San Francisco for wayward uh, boys. So she was privy to that. And I, I, would, I surmised in my article, and I think it's a fair... Um, assumption that she failed to mention him because it wouldn't have looked good if she had told the truth in re in relation to not only her story but her brother's story because he ended up in the reformatory. So that fueled me further. I thought, wow, you know, her 
brothers left home at the age of 13. So it's possible Sadie did the same thing. And sure enough, um, the more I dug into the, the underbelly of San Francisco, the more I found 13-year-olds doing exactly that, not only running away from home, but being procured into prostitution. And it's as despicable as um, as it is, and it, it was a fact that wasn't mentioned, obviously, by Sadie, but it was a fact and it was happening uh, around the area where she lived. And unfortunately for her, it happened to her um, in 1873. So at some point, um, she became the subject of a procurer. Uh, the procurer's name was Emma Hopper, who was an, a notorious prostitute procurer. Um, one of one journalist described Emma Hopper as one of the worst women to have ever lived. Um, and I, I guess because of that, the time and place, that journalist couldn't go into great detail about what he really wanted to say, but. Uh, I think he got the message across that this woman was just the pits, really. I mean, when you think about it, procuring girls from the age of 10 into a lifestyle that was, you know, was going to be awful um, was an evil thing to do, but she was doing it and she wasn't the only one doing it. So, yeah, yeah I, I found um, a very detailed article uh, that described... Josephine, Sarah, Sadie, Marcus being procured at the age of 13 or 14. Well, you, I'm going to read a, a, a little bit of your article, just a little bit, about what you wrote. And it, and it really sums up a lot of why she did what she did, but it also brought in two other women into her life. And here's what you wrote. The reason for the lack of personal detail related directly to her need to cover in needing to cover up most of her teenage past. It was a past that would take another sordid turn and was heavily influenced not by her schoolgirl best friend as she t wanted, but by two women whose names would uh, not look good to anyone's memoir. And that was Haiti Wells and Ella Howard. Tell us about those two. Yeah, so um, Hattie Wells and Ella Howard both came from Chicago, which, you know, we know was a tough town, uh, maybe even tougher than San Francisco in some ways. So they were prostitutes. Uh, they didn't hide the fact. They were very successful prostitutes. Um, both became madams. Um, and they migrated to San Francisco uh, in 1868. So Hattie Wells came with several women um, via the Panama Canal, set up one of the most luxurious brothels uh, in San Francisco, and by 1870, Hattie Wells was doing exceptionally well uh, in the vice trade. She was known um, not only in the middle class, but she was also 
uh, well known to the upper class, mainly because she provided an incredibly luxurious brothel. So in the article, I actually uh, found uh, references to her brothel that were uh, written by journalists from the San Francisco Chronicle that visited the place. Um, and I also found a list of uh, the furniture and fittings that uh, Hattie Wells fitted her brothel out with because eventually she sold it and moved to Prescott, which is where Stady comes into the story more. But the the list of items that were in her brothel were uh, were of a very expensive nature. So Hattie Wells wasn't a streetwalker. She wasn't low class uh, and neither was Ella Howard. They were both, I refer to them as high class Hattie Wells and elegant Ella Howard. Uh, and that's based all around the fact that they were of the, the upper echelon of prostitution. As we know, even today, there's, there's varying degrees of prostitution. There's high class uh, very expensive, uh, and then there's, you know, your, your very low-class street walker. Patty Wells and Ella Howard were of the upper echelon. They were – their place was renowned for its luxurious fittings. She employed a piano – a pianist, a piano player. Uh, when I say piano player, it sounds like a saloon player, but uh, the the people, the reporters from the San Francisco Chronicle – stated that um, she had a German pianist playing classical music in her brothel. So, you know, she had a very expensive chiggering piano. Uh, she had luxurious fittings. Uh, she had several rooms. She she leased a three-storey uh, building. She was She had money. She was extremely successful as what she did, and she only employed... Um, very desirable women. So as ugly as the, the whole situation was, Hattie Wells and Ella Howard were were of the upper class in terms of that profession. And um, as luck would have it, um, the, the San Francisco section of town where she was operating became too violent. Um, it became too crowded. Uh, and it was on the edge of Chinatown. So Hattie Wells and Ella Howard made the decision to sell up everything and they made quite a lot of money doing it at auction in 1873 and they moved to Prescott, which was the territorial capital of Arizona, and they both set up shop in Prescott. So we have a pretty famous madam and her... um, a second-in-command, Ella Howard, setting up a brothel in Prescott. And they I think they went there because uh, to escape the, the overcrowded situation they faced in San Francisco, I think she realised that she'd, uh, she had a lot of money in assets, so she sold all those assets at auction. And I've, in the article, I, I've got a copy of the auction advertisement. She set up a business, new business with Ella Howard in Prescott and she ran into, immediately ran into several politicians, doctors, lawyers, professional men who all wanted that service 
again because she set up a very very elegant place and one of those customers was Johnny Bean. Something else. Something else. We only have about 10 minutes left. So to, Hold on, to, cut, to, the okay. yeah, to cut to the chase, um, if we only have 10 minutes left, um, what I discovered was that Sadie was procured, willingly procured. In other words, she went willingly. She had chances to leave uh, the brothel that she was procured to, but she failed to do so. The following day after a procurement, she again had chances to return home. This is when she's a 14-year-old girl. She she decided not to. Um, the police raided the place based on a tip-off and she was uh, taken to the police station. She was charged. She was held in the cells overnight. And the following day she, played, she faced police court and was returned to a family because a family... Uh, had come looking for her, so the judge decided, well, hey, she's got a loving family, she should be returned to the family, so she was. But within 12 months, uh, she changed her name to Sadie Mansfield to avoid embarrassment for the family, and she was um, procured by Ella Howard uh, on instructions from Hattie Wells, and as a group, they all made their way back to, to Prescott and she set up shop with uh, as a prostitute working in Hattie Wells' brothel and one of her first and most eager clients was Johnny Bean. And not only was he her, her major client, Bean also stayed overnight at the brothel, which was not um, unheard of but wasn't common. And so Bean was completely... Um, enthralled by Sadie and that's why uh, she was named in Josephine Bean's divorce papers as being the prime mover in the divorce. Bean was spending time, too much time at the brothel and his major attraction was Sadie and we know Sadie admitted to having intimate relations with Bean and, um, and from there the story escalates even further. So if you're wondering who we're talking to still, we're talking to Peter Brand. He wrote an article in the March 2023 WWHA Journal. If you go to wildwesthistory.org, you can go to the journal part in the website and request a copy if they're out and then they're out. Um, but if they're in, still in, they still have them, you can buy them and have them delivered. Or you can just become a member and get it over with. And um, and then get articles like this on a quarterly basis. You don't have to worry about going to the website and purchasing them, but you can get them through your home address by becoming a member at the wildwesthistory.org. And uh, it's 75 bucks a year, and you get the journal delivered right to your door. Yeah, now, so, so one of the things that she did in her, in her memoir to cover up the fact that she'd come mm -hmm. at an early age to, to Prescott or to Arizona as a prostitute, to cover that up, she invented a story which has permeated into movies and popular culture that she was actually an actress, uh, a singer-dancer who um, joined a travelling entertainment group. And that, she claimed in a memoir, that's how she ended up in Arizona because obviously... Um, 
she had to try and explain somehow how she how she ended up from being in a family home in San Francisco to being in a brothel in um, in Prescott. And her way to cover that up was to say that she was actually a a singer dancer who who joined a travelling troupe, uh, made their way to Arizona, and was there entertaining people. A somewhat legitimate um, occupation of the time. So she was spinning her story to hide the fact that she'd actually been a, a working prostitute at a very early age. Um, there's inconsistencies all throughout her memoir that clearly point to the fact that she was covering something up because nothing added up. Um, and so in the movies, in the, in the White Earp movie with Kevin Costner, we see her introduced at, on stage as, as a performer. And in the Tombstone movie, we see her also um, with a travelling show. And that's how White first set, sets eyes on her. And, and in my article, I, I make it clear that that couldn't possibly have happened. It didn't happen. Um, White set eyes on her um, in Tombstone uh, when she eventually made it to Tombstone with Johnny B. And, he, his first interaction with her was probably when she was a prostitute. She was certainly not an actress. She was certainly not in the entertainment business or not in that entertainment business. Um, it was all just fiction. It was all just a way of trying to avoid the unfortunate truth. Um, and, you know, in some ways people would say, well, that's – that." That's understandable. You know, we'd all we'd all like our our pasts to be a lot better than possibly they were. And but she told such outrageous lies um, that once Roger J dug dug into it, once Carol Mitchell dug into it, and then once I dug even further into it, it was obvious that she was she was telling the most outrageous lies. Um, leaving people out of her story for obvious reasons, adding false names into her story for obvious reasons. Um, so the whole story was a canard of lies wrapped around a couple of truths uh, to make it seem a little bit plausible. But uh, once you've read the article, I think you come away with a, with a much better understanding of who she was, uh, why she did what she did, and um, how she ended up in Arizona. Yeah, I mean, your article talks a lot. I we didn't even talk about the the time when she got into Tip Top and um, out by Gillette, Arizona. Yes, we didn't talk about that. There's enough. She was in some. She was in some pretty rough towns, and that was courtesy of Johnny Bean. Yeah, um, because Bean didn't hang around in Prescott. He he moved to Tip Top. He opened a saloon in Tip Top in 1878, and she followed him there. Uh, then she followed him um, to Phoenix. She followed him to Prescott. She followed him to Arizona. Uh, sorry, to Tombstone. And uh, so she was all like, wherever Johnny Bean was, um, Sadie Marcus, Sadie Earp, Sadie Mansfield was as well. Do you have enough to turn a 25-page article into a book? Well, the beauty of the WWHA, and this is why I really agree with you, that people who are genuinely interested in the truth should sign up to the journal, is because you can write articles on sections of people's lives. So 
when you go to the WWHA, if you're a member, and, and you put forward a manuscript to them, which is what I did, I said, look, I, I have an article here that I've written about Sadie that I think will um, educate people more towards the truth. It will it will enlighten people. They don't say, you know, do you, do you cover a whole life? They say, you know, what are you covering? And, and the beauty of the journal is you can cover an episode of somebody's life in great detail, um, and that's what I did, and that's what a lot of the, the articles in the journal are. They'll take an episode from somebody's life and they'll be able to expand on it, source it, footnote it, provide you with the detail, the dates, the times, the places for that particular episode in someone's life. So to answer your question, I wouldn't tackle a uh, biography of Sadie because once Sadie marries Wyatt Earp or or becomes Wyatt Earp's common law wife, basically what she is 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 an attachment to Wyatt. She's everywhere Wyatt is, and we know where Wyatt was. We know Wyatt Earp's story, and she becomes Mrs. Wyatt Earp. And so her story in some ways ends in that she becomes his common law wife and the rest has already been written in many ways because she gave up the prostitution game when she became Wyatt Earp's common-law wife. So what my um, article does is document her life from 1870 to 1882. 1882 is when she eventually becomes Wyatt's partner, lifelong partner. So from that point on, really, you you know, a lot of the, the story is... Is, has been already accurately told. What hasn't accurately be told, been told is her story from 1870 to 1882, and that's what I did with the Wallet uh, with the WWHA Journal article. And that's why the journal is such a, a great way for writers to uh, get their work published because you don't you don't it, it, the format of the journal is not to uh, tell someone's full story as such it's to to take an important episode of their life perhaps uh and expand on that so that you you advance the story you advance what's already been written by analyzing and going into greater depth about things that may be wrong an episode that may be wrong or brand new information on an episode in someone's life that's never been told before so we got just a few minutes left. Take a drink of water because I know your mouth and your throat's getting dry. You go ahead and take a drink of water. Yeah, right up. I can hear it. I know Peter. After a while, I know Peter. And when we're talking, he's like, I got to take a drink of water. Um, yes. So I'm going to ask you the time machine question that I've asked before. If there was a period during this time up to 1882 that you could go back and watch, but not change the history, but visually see to get more clarification on what you researched, where would you go to see in her life? Uh, I'd like to, I'd definitely like to be in Prescott in 1874, and I'd love to have then followed Bean and Sadie to Tombstone um, by 1880 and just 
just to experience what that dynamic was like because um, we know Bean was a ladies' man. We know that he uh, had several liaisons with all sorts of different people. Um, that was one of the reasons that um, Sadie got smart and distanced herself from Bean. But, yeah, I'd love to go back to that, that time period, 1880, 1882, in Prescott, both Prescott because it was the territorial capital, and there was a lot of politics going on there. And then down in Tombstone, I'd love to have um, been around in that period, 1880 to 1882, because not only was there politics going on, but there was mining, there was gambling, there was gunfighting, there was there's a, a, a turf war um, over gambling. You know, there was the OK Corral, there was the Benson stage holdup. There's, there's so much going on in that short space of time in that, um, in that territory, I would have loved to have done that. Fair enough. Well, we're talking to Peter Brand. You can find this article, 25 pages. Now think about the, this, when I'm going to say this to you. We only talked about the first five pages. So that means there was 20 pages we haven't even discussed or, or brought anything up yet. So, you know, there's so much to this article. If you want to see it, Go to the wildwesthistory.org at, um, yeah, the wildwesthistory.org uh, and go to the journal spot and you can go and file, ask a request to see this. This is the March 2023 uh, edition of the journal. Or you can join by becoming a member for 75 bucks a year at wildwesthistory.org and be part of the family. We'd love to see you. Um, of course, Peter Brand can get his books all over on Amazon. Um, he's got some wonderful books. If you research Peter Brand, The Vendetta Ride, and Johnny Tyler, and Peter Mallon, there are so many books. And these podcasts, we've we've spoken about every single book uh, in my podcast. So go through the archives. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or iHeartRadio or wherever, Podbean, like you can go through the archives and find those podcast that I've done with Peter and you can hear about his books but if you want to buy them again worldwide uh, you can go to Amazon and uh, if you live in Australia Europe Alaska Montana doesn't matter where and you want to get his books go to Amazon you can do it there of course my friends over at Tombstone Epitaph at tombstoneepitaph.com be a subscriber Mark and Eric doing a great job and uh, Bob Bozbell keeps putting it out with the the team over there they're doing a great job Bob puts out a great magazine, and uh, that you can you can be a subscriber at truewestmagazine.com. You get the subscribe button. It's going to bring down a drop menu, and you'll see all the ways you can get Truest Magazine right to your door. Um, as always, I appreciate you bunch. Uh, if you uh, are on any of those places like iTunes or Spotify, please leave a rating and a review. Even if you don't like it, you know, then leave a rating and a review. Or if you do like it, uh, that's great. And you can also put suggestions like, who would you like to hear? Um, I'm already booked up into July. I'm working on August now and August. And uh, uh, what's the next one after that? September, August, September. September, we're looking to September. Um, if I can get some people lined up that I've research, reached out to, you guys are going to be blown away what's going to be coming your way. As always, I appreciate you guys a bunch. As always, uh, safe travels, and we'll see you soon.